I grew up in a small town, um, not that unlike Wellsville, a little bit bigger, but not much. Um, and uh, my high school was similar to, I think, all small high schools, which is to say one giant rumor mill. Like, I don't know how many of you grew up in small schools, but um, rumors ruled the day. Um, there was nothing more dangerous and yet delicious than a good rumor, right? Um, we all fear them um, when they're about us, but we just love them when they're about somebody else. Um, we, uh, uh, we believed um, some of the most ridiculous garbage that you could imagine just because it came through the rumor mill. Did you hear? You know, people would say that. And then we just loved passing it on to somebody else. You know, that's kind of what we did. But my senior year was weird for me. Because all of my friends, like well, most of my friends, were a year older than I was. From seventh grade on, I in seventh grade I played on all the eighth grade teams in all the sports. And so from from like seventh grade on, I always played with a year older than me. My junior year in basketball was like the first time our school went to state in like 40 years, and I was the only junior player on that team. Like everybody else was seniors, um, and so most of my like buddies were a year older than me. So when they all graduated and went away to college, uh, I was kind of displaced for my senior year. It was kind of weird. Um, and so I came back my senior year uh, with an interesting perspective. I wasn't as connected and like intertwined in the whole school social system as I had been. Uh, and I, and I, the, one of the main effects, I simply could not muster the fear and reverence for rumors that I had once had. Um, because I just didn't feel any pressure to constantly maintain, you know, the fragile reputation that you don't want some rumor to mess up. And so not long into my senior year, um, I was talking to this female friend of mine and we decided to do a funny little social experiment um, in our school. We decided to confirm, absolutely confirm every single rumor we heard, no matter how outlandish it was. We were going to say, oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. I know that's for, true for a fact. And so no matter how... Uh, you know, somebody would come up and say, hey, did you hear that? We would say, no, no, I know for a fact that's true. Like we would confirm every rumor we heard, no matter how silly they got. Um, and even if they were talking about us, like I heard you, we're like, yep, that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, and so as, as soon as, uh, um, the weird thing is, as soon as we started confirming every single rumor, nobody would believe us. Like it, it, uh, someone would come to us, and say, hey, I heard that a certain person slept with a certain person. And we'd say, oh, that's absolutely true. I talked to him. I know it's true. They would go, no, it's not. And I was like, you brought it to me. What are you, you're now trying to talk me out of the rumor that you were trying to spread to me. And, uh, and so uh, at, at, at which point, you know, I would, I, after I would remind them that they're the ones that brought the information to me, they would, uh, they would then, you know, yeah, there's another one. That was stupid. I don't know why I even said that. And, and, uh, and within about a month of this, of just confirming every single rumor we heard, rumors basically shut down in our school. It wasn't even any fun to spread them anymore because you just said they're true. And, and, uh, and it quit. It's like a fascinating how many people were only passing, they were passing information they really didn't believe at all. It was just fun to pass it. And as soon as, you know, you kind of confirmed it, they were like, that was dumb. They're not, I know better than that. <laughs> Why are you telling me this? But uh, I thought of this story this, reason, this week for a couple of reasons. One, I had a conversation this week about the risks and dangers of having access to too much information today. Like you can get online and find a study or an article or something that confirms literally anything you want to believe. Like you can get on and find information to back any belief you already have. To the point that information itself has gotten so 
big that it's now powerless. Like it, most of us read something, and we're like, yeah, but there's headlines that say the opposite too. Like, like it doesn't matter how important the information is, we ignore it because we know there's great information, you know, on the other side as well. So it's like it was kind of like the rumor thing. The, the more you confirm it, the weaker it gets. It's kind of bizarre. But the second reason um, that kind of blatantly confirming the rumor mill. Uh, wound up being the thing that ultimately killed it was uh, uh, was how upside down it was. It was such a backwards thing than you would think. The more involved you got in it, the weaker it got. Which fit this week's message perfectly because um, this week as we dive into week 11 of our summer series, Welcome to the Kingdom, we're going to be talking about the upside down nature of God's kingdom. Um, this is one of the most unique things that uh, uh, about God's kingdom is how backward it is. Uh, so we're actually going to start uh, this morning in Matthew 5, which is popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this represents the first of five sermons that Matthew records in his gospel. Um, Matthew's, uh, when you pull back out of Matthew and, and kind of don't focus on the specific stories, but you look at the structure, it's actually beautifully built. It's It's very intentional. Um, sermon that Matthew wrote uh, to tell the story of Jesus. He split it into five sections. Um, most scholars believe that he was kind of mimicking the five books of Torah, um, the, what we call the Pentateuch, um, the first five books of the law. And so it, 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 when you pull back and look at it, Jesus would um, do some, some miracles, he would interact with some people, and then he would preach a sermon. And he would do some miracles, he would interact with some people, and he would preach a sermon. And the, the miracles and the interactions always fed that sermon. Um, and each sermon has a different uh, flavor, um, has a different like main point that he's preaching. But Matthew gives five what we call discourses or sermons, five sermons that Jesus preached. And the very first one is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the most kind of fundamental and foundational um, of Jesus' teachings in the book of Matthew. They get way more specific and targeted from there. But it's kind of the, 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 the main uh, fundamental teaching from Jesus. In fact, Matthew starts the sermon this way. Just before he dives into the sermon, he says, Jesus traveled through the region of Galilee teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. So this is what Jesus is doing in this in this sermon. Um, he is announcing the good news of the kingdom. So this is kind of Jesus's sermon about this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what the kingdom of God will look like. And then he dives into this pretty lengthy sermon. So in Matthew 5, if you want to follow in your own Bible or app, um, it reads like this. Uh, One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up, on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And God blesses those who are persecuted for doing what's right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And God blesses people, uh, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For great, a great reward awaits you in heaven. 
And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, this is a, a really powerful passage because it, it seems to set the tone um, for the entire sermon that Jesus preaches. He then goes on to preach for two more chapters about the kingdom of heaven. Um, uh, as he said, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Uh, but the entire sermon, the, the, the mood or the theme is set off right here in the beginning. Uh, and most of us in ch- have been in church long enough that we've heard uh, lots of sermons promising blessing, right? Blessing is a major thing uh, we talk about in church. And that can take on a lot of different uh, definitions. Um, sometimes they, they, they uh, are talking about financial blessing. We talk about how to get you know, financially blessed and, and God uh, takes care of you. Um, uh, and some, uh, uh, you know, talk about, you know, blessed with miracles and, 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 all, and all kinds of things like that. But it's weird. Most of them don't come up and say, God is going to bless you by being poor and needy. God's going to bless you with, with mourning. Like we don't talk that way usually, right? If God's going to bless you, he's going to humble you. And that's going to be a blessing. Like this list is weird because it's not, when we talk about blessing in church, it's not usually this stuff. God's going to bless you to be merciful and pure heart, peacemaker, persecuted. The, uh, it, most of what is promised in church is the exact opposite of that. We talk about the opposite of those things. We, we, by normal definitions, being persecuted is a bad thing. You don't call that a blessing. You know, we, we, we stand up and say, I'm, you know, I'm being persecuted for my faith like it's, a, it's an attack of the enemy. But persecution is one of the things that, that Jesus says is a blessing. That you're blessed when that happens. By all the world's standards, the Beatitudes should read more like this. What we normally talk about, they should read more like, more like this. Blessed are the self-sufficient who know how to motivate themselves and get stuff done. Right? That's what we would normally hear. Which makes sense. Blessed are those who recognize their emotions can't be trusted. They ignore their feelings and rely on logic and will. Feel like that's the message we generally hear? Blessed are those who stand up for themselves, those who speak their mind and figure out for themselves who, who they are, rather than being open to the ideas of others. Blessed are those who grab every opportunity afforded to them. No one gets ahead by thinking of the other guy. Life's not fair, so you might as well work hard and get yours. Hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. Forgive, but never forget. People need to be held accountable for their actions, and if someone hurts you, cancel them. They're toxic. That's the message we hear today. A sucker is born every day. No one gets ahead by playing by, by, playing by the rules. People are simple and easy to manipulate if you play your cards right. You can get them to buy anything. The other side of the aisle is damned. And I'm on social media just speaking my, uh, my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing my peace. They say nasty stuff about my team all the time. Why wouldn't I defend my side? You can't make peace with people that are stupid. God only expects me to be at peace with my people that I already agree with. And blessed are those who let stupid people know how stupid they are. Blessed are those who use sarcasm and belittling and make it clear that the other side is wrong and make them feel small, as small as possible. It's not persecution if they're dumb. 
And I'm on God's side. And I'm obviously already perfect. Though I'd never say that out loud. And I'll be 100% honest, by normal standards, I'm not even saying some of these are evil. I'm saying this is just good old-fashioned earthly wisdom. This is the way we are taught to believe. This is the way normal kingdoms would work. These are, these are tried and true and trustworthy proverbs. And they will help you succeed in life by all outward appearances. They will bless you. If you live that way, you will be blessed. Which just further highlights what's wrong with this list. When was the last time you saw someone poor and humble uh, and, and really justice-oriented and peaceful and merciful? When was the last time you saw that person walking around relishing the way heaven has opened up the floodgates and rained blessing on them? Like that's not, Those aren't the people that succeed. Those aren't the people that excel in our world. So right here at the beginning of Jesus' sermon, that is also the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the upside-down nature of His kingdom. Any Stranger Things fans? i got a couple. The rest of you are embarrassed to admit it. Right? No. Uh, okay, so we got a couple that love it. I watched the first season because we had this like thing where Esther was out of town. I don't do scary movies. I'm a baby. They scare me and then I you know, can't sleep at night. Um, and so I don't do any scary movies. But, uh, but my, the, my kids' cousins, my nieces and nephews were all watching it. And Esther was out of town. The kids were like, come on, Dad, let's watch it. So we, we binge watched the first season in like two nights. And I didn't sleep for a week. It I wet the bed and everything. It was terrible. But... Um, but <laughs> But uh, so I haven't watched like everything else because I've reached that point where the kids were like, "Come on, now let's watch a new season." I was like, "You know what? I'm a grown man. I don't have to watch something if it scares me. Like I'm not going to watch this." And so I haven't watched since. But um, but one of the mysterious elements of the show is this alternate reality they call the Upside Down, and I don't even know if it's still a thing in the show. I don't. I haven't, like I said, I haven't watched the most recent seasons, but. Um, it's actually this like parallel or maybe like a mirror universe um, would be a better explanation that's right on the other side of our world. And the kids keep getting sucked in there. And when you get in there, it's scary and there's monsters in there and all kinds of weird stuff. But um, uh, but I, I, this idea of a mirror universe um, kind of uh, jumped out at me as this weird explanation for the way the kingdom of God happens, um, because I think it gives us a decent visual picture um, for how things go. And it it seemed to help me uh, especially explain the Beatitudes. Um, But I think it can can explain a great many things about living in the kingdom of God. We have this tendency to think in terms of mountains and valleys, right? We talked last week, we sang highlands, I will praise you um, in the mountain, I'll praise you in the mountains in my way. We remember, like we remind ourselves all the time that God is present both in the valleys and on the mountaintops and and when we think that way we tend to think the mountaintops are the good thing like that's where i want to be i want to be on the mountaintops but every once in a while i have to go through a valley and it's awesome that god's with me there Um, but when we're in the valley and i thought of this in terms of the upside down when we're in the valley and our lives are falling apart and we can't see um we don't feel like anything is working for us um and we're praying that god does a miracle when when Neither the blessings of the past or the hope of the future are in our line of sight. We can't see either. 
All we see is the hole we're in. You can't see how God has taken care of you in the past. You can't see how, how hopeful the future is with God. When we're humbled and poor and needy and all that other stuff, when, when we're flat out on bottom and we cannot imagine being able to go any lower. At that exact same moment we're in that valley, in the upside down, that valley is actually the peak. And, and we're actually on the mountaintop. In my life, my absolute lowest moments. And don't get me wrong, I would never in a million years choose these moments. And I hope to never have to go back to these moments. I, ho- I, I would never wish these moments on my worst enemies. But my absolute lowest moments, when I look back at my life, were the moments that God did the most for me. The moments that I look back and now, in a weird way, I thank God for. Like I thank Him and then go, please don't ever let me do that, do that again. Like I thank You for that and I thank You for the work that You did in me and I thank You for the real life-changing things that happened there that changed my faith forever. But please don't ever put me back there again. Like it's a weird thing how thankful we can be for the valleys. And I think because in the upside down, those are actually the mountaintops. In those valleys, more than any other place, God does His work. And I actually rejoice that I went through some. But in an upside-down kingdom, the valleys are the mountaintops, and the mountaintops are often the valleys. We all know this, the statement, pride comes before a fall. Like it's usually, my coach used to put it this way, the thing that always follows a pat on the back is a kick in the butt. Like usually when we're on the mountaintop and everything's going great is when everything falls apart. It's when we, we get cocky. We really feel like we don't need God anymore. We, uh, we, we feel like we've got this and we can handle this. And that's usually when we fall. Um, and once we find out the upside down nature of God's kingdom, we realize that this is everywhere in Scripture. That this is a pattern all through it. In fact, one of the reasons most of the Jews miss Jesus was because they had overlooked a key passage about the way the Jewish king was supposed to look. This is in Deuteronomy before uh, Israel ever dreamed of having a king. Moses is still leading them. This is even before the judges um, and anybody else had ever led. As far as they know, this is the way things will be forever. Uh, uh, nobody's asked for a king. Nobody's thought about having a king. Everything is good. Um, but Moses, uh, I think through the Holy Spirit, knew what would eventually happen. That the nation would eventually cry out, um, for a king. And so here's what God said Israel's king should look like. It says, um, you're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should elect, or we should select a king to rule over us, uh, like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select a king, uh, as king, the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable for horses for himself and send his people to Egypt to buy horses. The Lord said you must never return to Egypt. The king must not have many wives for himself because they will turn his heart from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth of silver and gold for himself. When he sits on his throne, the king must copy for himself a body of instructions on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. 
and it will also prevent him from turning away from those commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he will, that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. So, this is what a, a, a Jewish king is supposed to look like. And in that day, horses were used primarily for warfare. They were, um, they were basically weapons, chariots and things. It says all the time, don't trust in chariots, don't trust in, in horses. The, the, you didn't ride horses for fun. They were a little too wild. They didn't have, you know, all the skills at breaking horses quite the way we do. And so they rode donkeys if you were just riding casually or even camels, um, some, but, uh, but horses were used for battle. They were battle machinery. So basically what, what, uh, what, uh, what Moses is saying, and also the, the harem, all the wives that he talks about, this was kind of a big deal, um, to nations back then because the, the more children you had, the, the safer your lineage was and the safer your throne and dynasty was. So a, a king with a big harem was, was also providing for the future of the kingdom. We won't have an issue with people fighting over this throne because he's got plenty of heirs and, and things like that to, to kind of propagate his, his line. And so, um, so what you have here is Moses saying, when you choose a king, he should not amass an army. He should not be worried about his lineage in the future. He should not amass great wealth and he needs to be a Bible guy. He needs, to, he needs to constantly be in the Bible. And this is all great in this weird, obscure passage in the Old Testament that we tend to, to look over, except if we're honest with ourselves, none of us would vote for this guy. Like, you know, if, if this guy ran for office and he has no interest in, mili- in, in military protection for the nation, um, he has no long-term plans or preparations for the future, which is what the harem and the children kind of represented. He's not really into fiscal matters of, of wealth and, and finances, but he can really quote scripture. Like, I'm not sure this is the guy most of us, like most of us like, well, we, we have to have a military. How can you be a country without a military? And, and honestly, Everything's too expensive right now. We need a money guy. We need somebody, you know, that's interested in, in money and blah, blah. This kind of leadership only works in an upside down kingdom. This is not a leader who would succeed in an earthly kingdom. This is not a leader that we would say, like none of the great leaders we look at, you know, who, who grew empires and giant powerful kingdoms looked like this. None of them. So when Jesus shows up, no one is looking for the Deuteronomy upside down king. Nobody's looking for a guy who, who doesn't have a harem and, and isn't into army and warfare and who's, who doesn't cling to money and who's a Bible guy. Nobody's looking for that guy. What they were actually looking for was, was, a, was a Maccabee. I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, Israel, from the time Babylon took over Israel all the way up to 63 uh, BC, so right before, well, I mean, actually, 63 BC is when they were conquered again, but when Babylon overtook them, they were, they were subjects of greater kingdoms, except for this little chunk where, uh, I won't get too deep into it, but the Seleucid army, um, was, had conquered, and this, this huge ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes, um, had come in and done horrible things in Israel, sacrificed pigs on the Jewish altars, and done all these terrible things, and they were making sacrifices one day, and there was this priest, he was one of the Jewish priests, um, and he's there, it's his job to help make the sacrifices, and they were sacrificing things they shouldn't, and this dude lost his mind, pulled his sword, and killed uh, Antiochus Epiphanes' priest and a bunch of other people, and ran. And this guy's uh, last name was 
uh, Hasmonea, um, and they nicknamed, actually it was his oldest son, they nicknamed Maccabee, which means the hammer, which is an awesome nickname, by the way. Um, you know, uh, Judah the hammer. Um, Judah, Judas Maccabees um, was, uh, was his son. And so when he ran, his sons ran, and there's this really famous story of this group of, of uh, Jewish warriors who came in and chased out this giant Seleucid army. And it, like a bunch of the other cool Old Testament stories, it, it blended with the army getting news that they were being attacked at home, so they weren't super focused. And when you, you know, when you watch the way Israel won battles in the Old Testament, you know, people would hear rumors and they'd start killing each other. And Israel standing there going, hey, we won and didn't even have to do anything. This was kind of one of those. The right news came at the right time. The army got stuck in this. Do we go home and defend the homeland? Do we fight these guys? And the Maccabees came in and, and wiped them out and chased them off. And it was this huge victory. And there was a big chunk of time, they call it the Hasmonean dynasty, there was this big chunk of time that the Hasmoneans ruled Israel. And Israel was free. Uh, this is kind of between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then in 63 uh, B.C., Rome came in and reconquered Israel. And so this is only like 30 years before Jesus that they lost their freedom again and got reconquered. And so that Hasmonean dynasty is very like fresh in the taste of everybody in Israel. And they're like, we did it once, we can do it again. Like we need that crazy priest with a sword to come in and start hacking off heads. Like that's the way they thought. Like that's, you know, the Maccabees did it, we can do it again. And granted this was, you know, almost 500 years previous that this happened, but but they had held on to their freedom until just barely before Jesus was born. So it's still pretty fresh. And they're looking for that again. This military might, these warriors to come in with great nicknames to free the country. And instead they get Jesus. They get this guy that, that does his work out in the countryside by healing people and blessing people and providing food for people um, and, 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 and teaching the kingdom. So when Jesus shows up, everyone was looking for the Hasmoneans. They're looking for the Maccabees. They're not looking for an upside down kingdom. They're not looking for that Deuteronomy king that does things differently. So I imagine when Jesus sat down to teach on the hillside full of people about the kingdom and what the kingdom was like, it started with the people who are poor and, and understand they're needy and, and they'll be blessed right there. Right off the bat, you can see that this king is different. He's not talking about the, you know, the, the people who are blessed and the people who pull their sword and stand up for God. You know, he's saying, no, the, the, the poor are the, are the ones that are blessed. Which begs the question, why do the people who live markedly contrary to the Beatitudes tend to live more blessed lives? And I think the answer to that question lies in the language. Or more specifically, our definition of the word blessed. The Greek word for blessed in this passage is makarios. Makarios. And it only has two translations. Sometimes it's translated blessed and sometimes it's translated happy. Happy. Happy are those. Blessed are those. See, we have this tendency to, to carry our kind of predetermined definition for what it means to be blessed into the Beatitudes. Blessed means to not, you know, to to have all the things you need, to, to have material success, to have success in your work, to, uh, to be healthy and strong and fame and money and a good job and safety and everything, that's blessed. But to the Jews, that's, there's a different definition. And not only 
will this list not get you the fame and the fortune and the, the, the health and safety? Um, uh, not only will it not get you that, but it, it goes the other direction. In fact, the World Health Organization did a huge study a few years ago um, based on what they called the happiness quotient. They, uh, and it was a, it was like a 20, 30 year study and they did it all over the world. They dumped a ton of money into it. And it was kind of a big deal. The results actually came out a couple of years ago, but they were interested in seeing if having more stuff would actually create more happiness. Like if you basically, they were seeing if you could buy happiness, if you gave somebody more of something, would they be happy? And what they found was, uh, to an extent it can, if you do not have your basic needs met, if you don't even have what it takes to live, giving somebody enough to get their basic needs met does make them happier. Their happiness quotient goes up. If you don't have food or water and you give somebody enough to have food and water, they get happier. Um, so to an extent, when you don't have enough to really survive, you can buy happiness. You can give somebody stuff and they will get more happy. Um, but once you have enough, the, the, the ratio inverts. Suddenly, once you have enough, the more you get, the less happy you get. And it, they proved it all over the world, all different cultures, all different things that, that uh, up to enough, up to give us this day our daily bread, more gives you more happiness. And the second you pass that threshold, it goes the other way. They, as, as you gain more, as you're given more, your happiness quotient actually goes down. Because here's the deal, the things that we tend to think will make us happy rarely do. They almost never do. This is one of the biggest lies our culture is selling right now. Our culture is selling us uh, and our kids a totally different beatitude. Blessed are those who ignore the wisdom of anyone older than them. Right? You'll be happy if you ignore uh, commitment and just Netflix and chill. Blessed are those who stay as connected to as many people as possible via the device available to them. This is the Beatitudes our kids are being sold. You'll be happy if you just throw over every societal restraint to make your own self happy. The problem is, we, you know, we're telling people you can have all these things. Go get more. You can do whatever you want. There, there are no restraints. You can be who you want. You can have who you, what you want. You can blah, blah, blah. And yet... We are the most medicated, psychoanalyzed, depressed, suicidal, anxious generation in history. All of the stats in all those areas are going the wrong direction. The harder we seek our own happiness, the less we find it. The more, like we live in a generation now where, where the right thing is whatever makes me happy. That is the metric for behavior. Whatever makes me happy. And the more we strive for that, the less happy we get. We're one of the least happy, satisfied, peaceful generations that have ever lived. And unfortunately, the church's beatitudes tend to not be much better. Our society has already sold people a bill of goods that says you'll be happy if you get this and if you if you choose your own way and if you if you do you. And all the church does is change the way you get that. We don't really change it much. Some churches go all the way, you know, to the crass, you know, basically say right out loud that if you if you want lots of stuff you have to give lots of money to the church like some will go that route and there it's still if you want stuff here's how you get it we haven't really changed the list others just allude to the fact that if you if you if you live holy and if you you know are obedient 
God will pour out His blessings. That His blessings are dependent upon your behavior, but you can do it. You can, you can get blessed if you follow the rules. Rarely do we question what it means to actually be blessed. To actually be makarios. To actually be happy. Until we experience it. So what I like to do for the rest of our time is just look at what it might mean, according to the Beatitudes, to be blessed. And in so doing, maybe understand our own souls just a little better. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him. Esther and I were telling our kids uh, stories this week about, um, about giving, actually. We were talking about giving and the ways God has taken care of us over the years. And, and I told the stories about, to my kids about giving my entire paycheck. We were at like a, uh, a big conference and a whole bunch of people got saved and I got emotional and I'm crying and then they passed the bucket right after that and I'm like, how could you not invest in this? And I had turned my whole paycheck into cash. So that's how small our paycheck was back then. And, uh, and the bucket came through and I throw it in and I watched Esther like stiffen up next to me and I was like, probably should have talked to her about that. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I've, I've, I know I've told that story before, but I, uh, the thing that struck me as I was telling it to the kids is that um, I don't think I could do that today. Like back then, I you know it, it was weird because, and it's not because I've gotten any smarter. I don't think I've gotten any smarter. Um, but I think the reason I couldn't do it is because my paychecks are bigger now. Like I have more, and suddenly my faith is in a different place because it's a bigger sacrifice. It's like a, it's a scarier thing. It's a bigger amount of money. And so somehow my, my, my dependence on God, back then, I knew we weren't going to make it another month if God doesn't do, if God doesn't help. Like I felt utterly dependent on God. I was poor and knew my need for Him. And so when it came to giving, it was easy. Because it's all God's anyway. And suddenly you get to a place where you're working hard for what you have and, and you're, and you're trying to accumulate a little bit, you know, and suddenly it, it, it feels like some of it's on me now. Now that it's on me, it's a little harder to give. And I'm a little, a little less at peace with, with when God tells me, you know, to give more. And the stress is, is way more when you get into that place. Our souls were created to be dependent on God. And when, when we rebel against that and we feel like we can be self-sufficient, we, uh, it, it settles a weight on our shoulders that we were never created to bear. That I have to make this happen. This is on me. And what happens if it doesn't happen? And all of that stuff starts to get heavy. We were not created to carry that. We were created to be poor and dependent on God and know that He's our provider and He's the one that takes care of us. Because that's a weight that we can't carry. If we're a self-starter and a go-getter and we're self-sufficient, hard-working, we might make money. We might be what the world calls successful. But there's a peace that comes from knowing deep in our guts that it's not on you. That God is the source and supply. And He's the one that takes care of us. When we are, It doesn't matter how much we have, we can still be poor and realize our need for Him. And when we get to that place, we find ourselves makarios, blessed, happy. God blesses those who mourn. We've talked about this a lot this year, but... Uh, we're made by God to have both emotions and intellect. And, and, and oftentimes we use the example of a horseback rider. When we did our, 
our relationship class, we talk about a horseback rider. We were made with the with this intelligence and this will that are super important. It's like the it's like the rider on the horse. And and yet we have this wild, passionate, powerful side of us that's like the horse. And what we're generally taught in church is to keep that horse under control. And so what we usually wind up doing is leading it behind us. You stay in your place. And we move at the speed of a walker. And we jump with the height of a walker. And, and we have no power. We have all this power God has given us in this part of us that's emotional and passionate and and feels things, but we're so afraid of it that we only walk. And yet, some you know, we also know we don't want to jump on a horse and just let it run wild. And I, I've always told the story of riding the horse I used to have out of my mom and dad's, and and I rode this thing all over the place, and I could take Star anywhere, and it was awesome. But one day we're out riding, and Star sees a rattlesnake, and he bolts. And I was laying flat, stirrup straight out in front of me, yanking on these reins, and he didn't budge. We get back to the barn, he's breathing heavy, and I realized for the first time my control was an illusion. Like if I did not, if that horse did not want to go the way I wanted to go, it did not have to. I felt like I was in control, I was not in control. If that horse wanted to go, he could go. Those reins did nothing to that horse unless he wanted them to. But the beauty is, when you have the brains of the rider and the power and strength and, and ability of a horse and they work together. And that's what, how God made us with this, with this one side of us, this passionate and emotional and, and nothing good happens until we get angry. Like nothing good happens in the world until some people get frustrated and decide to make change. Like nothing happens in us until we start to feel some guilt. You know, that's when we go, I want to be a better person. I want to change some things in my life. Like, the emotional side of us is what drives most of the good that happens in our lives. And, and, and I think when we get into this place where, like, emotions are bad. Emotions can't be trusted. Emotions can't, uh, we can't use our emotions. You have to think with our rationality. We miss one of the most powerful tools the Holy Spirit has in our lives. And Jesus comes along and says, no, blessed are those who feel those things. Blessed are those who allow themselves to go into that place and allow themselves to hurt and mourn and, and be sad and feel all of those things because, because that's how he made us. Blessed are those who are humble. Anyone who's ever lived under the pressure of pride knows that it's hard to experience makarios, happiness, when you're working really hard to maintain an image. Because we uh, read a lot of books, Esther and I, you know, could really talk the marital talk. We read a lot of marriage books early in our marriage, wanted to do it right, and so we read a lot of books. And we wound up counseling other married couples way too early. The church was like, hey, could you talk to this couple? And blah, blah. And Esther and I had no experience. We didn't know what we were doing, but we're in there quoting Dobson and, you know, whatever, quoting the books. We knew how to talk to talk. And the worst part of that was when our marriage started to struggle, and we needed help. I was afraid to people to let people know we were struggling. I didn't want anybody. I'm the one out giving advice. I don't want anybody to know I'm having a hard time. I was having to sustain this pride and, and lack this humility because I didn't want people to think I was a fraud. So we just muscled through and suffered because I lacked the, the humility to ask for help. And we we didn't experience much makarios. Because we didn't have humility. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. We have justice wired into our souls. I don't know if you know that. 
But it shows up really early. How many of you have kids that have gone, this isn't fair? Anybody ever heard that? Like, and you're like, how do you even know what fair is? Like, it's like that justice is wired into us. Like, we know when something's not fair. And it's hard to swallow injustice. When you're on the, on the side, it's hard. I think most bitterness stems from, from our desire for justice. It's really hard to get, to get cheated and just let it go. Like, I mean, it could be something simple. You know, somebody cheats you out of, you know, 50 bucks or whatever. Boy, that can sit in there and just... And it's not even that you need the $50. It's like, it's just, it's just not right. It's just not fair. It's just not just. To ignore that, to ignore the, the, the wiring we have for justice is hard. It's really hard. And Jesus says, makarios, happiness comes from wanting to do things right, from wanting to do things just, from, from, from listening to that voice in our soul. God blesses the merciful. And this one stands in contrast to the previous one. We, we're all wired for justice and it eats at us when justice is denied us, but we live in a fallen world. And oftentimes justice just never comes. And before that grows into bitterness, Jesus says, says trust me, mercy. You will never find happiness if, if you don't have mercy. Mercy opens the door to makarios. God blesses those whose hearts are pure. If you've ever, li- ever lived with something weighing on your conscience, it's really hard to experience happiness at all. And if you can, it's, it's definitely not like peace. I was raised Catholic, and I think the thing I missed most about being Catholic is confession. Not like actually going to confession, because that was always embarrassing. I was a teenage boy, so that was never fun. But something about walking out of confession, because I believed in it wholeheartedly back then. And so when I walked out of confession, I was like, whew, I am clean. Like that, like it's all off my chest. Like that was an amazing feeling. Like, and, and granted it only held for about five minutes, but for those five minutes, man, it felt good, you know. To, to be pure of heart, to have your heart clean. I don't have any secrets. I don't have any, I don't have anything weighing me down to, to, like, that purity of heart is a good thing. God blesses those who work for peace. For this one, I'm just going to read Psalms 133. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is a precious, is as precious as anointing oil that is poured over Aaron's Head and ran down his beard and onto the borders of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew of Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. Something about peace and harmony, to be a peacemaker, to not live. I don't know how many of you ever lived with grudges and multiple grudges. Boy, it's, it's hard to find happiness when you're holding on to things like peacemakers, like let's just make this right, tend to find happiness. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing what's right. In a morally ambiguous world, there's something satisfying about doing the right thing, even if it costs you something. Even, even, even if you get teased for it or, or you lose privileges or even lose a job or whatever type of discrimination still happens in America today, when you do the right thing, it, it, it feels good. It feels good. There, when you're forced into or, or cornered into, you know, being shady, that's a terrible feeling. 
And, and man, it can eat at the soul. And Jesus is like, being blessed is, 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 is doing the right thing, even if it costs you something. These Beatitudes reveal the anatomy of the human soul. And every single one of us who have ever lived through one of these knows they're true. Like once you experience it, you know it's true. And yeah, it doesn't look like the kind of blessing we say when we got, pour out your blessings on us. But Jesus is like, this is what you were wired for. This is what it looks like to be blessed. These Beatitudes reveal who we are and how we were made. And if we want real blessing, real happiness, this is how it works. And I'll be honest, and maybe this is a confession, but today when I talk to people about their sin, uh, especially in my in like any kind of a confrontational sense, when I'm put in a spot where I have to talk to somebody about something they're doing wrong, it generally has nothing to do with the fact that their sin bugs me. Like, I think I've outgrown that. It doesn't even have to do with the fact that sin offends God. Because I'm pretty sure God's big enough to take care of Himself. I don't. He doesn't need me as a bodyguard. Like, there's not even that, you know, desire to see people no longer offend God. Anymore, when I'm talking to somebody about their sin, it's because usually they're miserable. Like, they're, they're a mess. And it hurts to see them be a mess. And you want to go, I can tell you how to be happier. Stop living like this. Like, you're... I mean, there's times when I'm like, honestly, if you were going to be happy, I'd be fine with you doing that. You know, whatever. But you are miserable. Like, you're doing... You're rebelling in all these ways and you're the one who's paying for it. Like, please let me show you how to make this better. I rarely confront sin from like a, you need to stop doing this, it's just wrong. Like, honestly, I, that's above my pay grade. If, I, if the Holy Spirit can't convict them, there's no chance I'm going to. But it's when I see somebody just with no makarios whatsoever that you have to step in and go, honestly, like, this is killing you. What you're doing is destroying you. But I love the fact that Jesus didn't start this sermon by telling people how to live just for principle's sake. Here's the way you live if you want to be in God's kingdom. He didn't say that. He, said, he didn't say this is how you're supposed to live because this is the, these are the rules of the kingdom. Jesus started by offering what they were already seeking. Happiness. Who doesn't want to be happy? Who doesn't want to live satisfied and, and blessed? It's almost like Jesus uh, dealt with, with lifestyle, not saying this is how you should live, but saying this is how happy people live. This is how satisfied people live. This is how, how full and, and flourishing people live. You don't have to do it. I'm just telling you, this is how happy people live. So how do we respond to this? Maybe the most notable attribute of the kingdom of God is the fact that it's upside down. Like once we realize that, everything starts to make more sense. If you want, if you want to receive, give. That is so backwards. It doesn't make any sense. Stories where the Samaritan or whoever you just naturally dislike, you can plug them in there instead of Samaritan. But stories where that person is the good guy. Completely backwards. If you want to live, you need to die. That's right in the Bible. Makes no sense whatsoever. Don't just love your friends and your neighbors. That makes sense. Everybody does that. Love your enemies. Well, if I love my enemies, would they really be my enemies? That doesn't matter. The least 
among you is the greatest. Simplicity that confounds the wise, Paul says. I came preaching just Christ and crucified and it confounded the wise. It goes on and on and on. But the way that I'd love to respond to this message is to recognize that we are supposed to live differently. And when I say that, I don't mean we're supposed to live by this list of rules and the world to do this, but you can't do this. Do's and don'ts. That's not what I mean by live differently. There are some of those, but what I'm talking about is that, you know, like right now we live in, in a country and a time and our nation is tearing itself apart. And, and we as believers need to hold firm to the conviction that the Holy Spirit has given to us. I believe that. But also recognize that blessings flow to the poor and dependent. Those who actually hurt and mourn for people rather than gloating over their pain and, and fear. Happiness comes to the humble who listen and, and, and think way more than they talk and yell. Blessings flow to those who fight for justice with a pure heart, but also those who, who, who cling to peace and, and mercy, even if you get persecuted for it. And the craziest part is, it, it's, it's not really something you do because it's good for the world. Like, it's not something we even do because it's, it's the right thing to, work, to do and the world will flourish. We do, we do it because it's good for our souls. It's good for us. When we let go of all of that and we live according to this, we're the ones who get blessed. We're the ones who can live free and breathe. So the way that I'd love to respond to this message is to be selfish this morning. I release you to be completely self-focused and do something that would guarantee you blessing. Focus on you for a few minutes. Do what will make you happy. And Jesus gave you the list. So go nuts this morning and, and focus on your own happiness for a while. But do it the way the Bible promises will work and succeed.